welcome to episode seven of the Think Tank podcast, brought to you by the Digital Innovation Group at Providence Health. Think Tank is a supercharged brainstorming session between two leaders from different verticals to help us solve some of healthcare's biggest challenges. This is Kelly Stonelake. Thank you for joining us. Today, we will be discussing how we build centers of innovation in state industries. Joining us today is Aaron Martin, Providence Health's Chief Digital Officer, and Woody Driggs, who is Principal and Leader of Wavespace, EY's Digital Incubator. Welcome, Aaron and Woody, and thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thank you. Okay, so I dropped a small but mighty word on us a minute ago. <laughs> Stayed. Uh, the official definition of state is respectable but unadventurous. Oof. Does it sound like I'm describing healthcare and finance? I think they invented that word for, for healthcare. <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we're definitely, for, for the right reasons, uh, you know, respectable, uh, especially, you know, Lord knows during the pandemic, uh, the, you know, I think the, the world kind of saw what <clears throat> incredible heroes we, you know, I'm privileged to work with every single day um, and, you know, how they put their lives at risk for their fellow, fellow man. Um, so definitely respectable and, and for the right reasons, not, not the most adventurous group of people because of, you know, we, <clears throat> we deal with people's lives. So, um, so for, for, for very good reasons. Yeah, and I would, I would agree, Aaron. I think, um, you know, you look across the, the spectrum of industries from technology to healthcare to automotive, um, aerospace and defense, and all of them have a, a, a unique perspective on transformation and change. And where you have regulated industries and regulations, uh, people spend a lot of time building organizations that manage risk really well <laughs> and uh, and that tends to slow things down and and including uh, slowing down the innovation process so uh, you know all of, every organization has its and every industry has its unique challenges when it comes to innovation and and they all need to look at it uh, in a new and different way because one thing we know is everything's changing and everything's being disrupted and six months ago is just a, a an amazing example of, of that fact well, and that's what's really interesting about this conversation is, you know, the two of you are essentially, you know, your full time gig, you're at the forefront of leading organizations to drive innovation and disruption in your respective industries. Woody, can you tell us a little bit about what you do and what Wavespace is? Yeah, happy to. So Wavespace is a, a place where we help our clients reimagine just about anything. Um, and that spectrum ranges on a, on a very long and broad range um, of what we call exam questions. Uh, some of those exam questions might be as simple as how do I use new technologies to close my books faster, for example. And at the same time, we have clients that are coming in and talking about, for example, uh, uh, patient care or um, individualized cancer care treatments going forward and the challenges around the drug supply chain when it moves from a one-to-many uh, to a one-to-one -one delivery of a specific vaccine for a specific uh, issue or challenge or tumor. And uh, all of the challenges that come along with the changes in that supply chain. And so helping clients to think through what are the platforms that are going to be required? What are the new business processes, business models? Where's the value going to be created in that 
um, is all uh, the types of things that we would look at with a client to understand what their role in that future, um, that future business model is going to look like. And Aaron, can you tell us also a little bit about what's going on at Think Tank for those who might not have caught the last episode and if you think it's really in line with what Woody's doing or what the differences are? Yeah, so at, at the Digital Innovation Group, it, it's kind of a, um, it, it, it's, it's one part operational within our health system. And so we, you know, maintain kind of the digital, you know, um, you know, the digital experience that um, our patients and our consumers kind of experience when they, they work with Providence and when they are, are, are treated by Providence. Um, and then we also build uh, new experiences where we don't see uh, something available in the market. And when we do build something, we build it for the express purpose of spinning it out as a separate uh, company. We've done that. <clears throat> so Providence Ventures, which is another team that kind of reports into me, they primarily invest in companies that um, already out in the market have existing, you know, what we call best of breed products that, you know, we didn't already have in our portfolio of, of solutions uh, after we've identified a very, very important problem. Um, and, um, and, and when we can't find something out in the marketplace, we'll actually build it, uh, create it as a product, make sure it works for us, then uh, try to sell it to another health system to kind of revalidate the market opportunity. And then if it hits that kind of note as well, then we'll create a company out of it and spin it out. So if you look at the 18 portfolio companies within Providence Ventures, Two of those uh, were were founded by our organization and spun out, and so we incubated them. And we're actually working on a third one right now that um, uh, we just announced the management team for called uh, Dexcare. So it's it's this kind of hybrid model of you know first determine do we already have a solution to a, a big priority problem in our portfolio of existing technical um, you know uh, existing vendors. If not, then we go to Providence Ventures. They go out and look in the marketplace to see if there's a solution out there in the market that's you know doing the job, um, and we may or may not invest in it. And then if if we can't if we don't own it, can't find it, then we'll build it. And if we build it, we'll build it for the purposes of creating a new company. Awesome. Yes, and digital innovation group. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Not yeah. the transformation of this podcast, but I mean, <laughs> we can talk about that next. Yeah. Well, I, and I'll just add to that. Um, it's an interesting dichotomy there and an interesting dual role that you play because one piece of the role is around improving the customer experience, which is essentially a, um, a productivity um, enhancement and or a, a transformation that's focused on creating a better experience for either your customer, your, your end customer, um, your, uh, your employees. And that's one of the challenges that we see clients having is they've got to make those productivity improvements and they've got to apply digital technologies to creating a better experience because most of the time that's what's going to create a better experience when you can give them 24 by 7 access or give them easy access through a mobile device um, or whatever it is. And then there's this completely separate agenda of building a new company, right? And um, and those are two very, very different agendas. Um, in one case, you have expectations that it's going to be successful 100% of the time. And the question is just how much benefit or better experience you're going to get. In the other, you're incubating something new um, and you're taking on a significant amount of risk. And 
um, the fail fast culture has to be uh, embedded in that process. And so those are really two really difficult balls uh, to juggle that I'm finding that when, especially in a state industry, um, you know, that, that uh, it's a muscle that, that clients now have to develop and they're struggling a bit to develop that muscle is what we find. Yeah. And, and what, to, just to add to what, to what Woody is saying, um, you know, for us, it, it's been, you know, several reasons why we do it this way. One is, is it's a force multiplier. It's a way of us getting scale in an industry that is, um, you know, uh, where, you know, we've got 120, you know, software engineers, mainly from, you know, places like Amazon and Microsoft are based in Seattle, but that's dwarfed by the resources kind of being put to bear by the major technology organizations. And so it's not that we're trying to kind of compete, we're trying to stay relevant, right? And if you don't kind of innovate on your own behalf, the thesis is you just, you know, you, you become an order taker, not, you know, in terms of like the technology that's kind of handed to you, right? But the, the problem that we've also got is, is, you know, kind of limited resources. Um, how do you get the most out of them? And, you know, in a typical kind of corporate innovation, you know, model, what happens is you, you create something new and novel. Um, you have got obviously a roadmap that you want to prosecute on that, that new kind of you know, product idea. But the challenge is, is you're constrained on resources. And so what happens is, you know, call it six, 12 months if you're lucky down the road, priorities shift, and you don't get to kind of fulfill that roadmap. And so in this case, what we do is because we're creating a separate company, which is super painful to your point, Woody, mm -hmm. like this is not the easiest thing in the world to do. Um, it at least gives that team access to additional capital through additional consumer, uh, sorry, additional customers and, um, and venture capital to kind of at least fully exploit that, that roadmap. So then what we do is, is think of us as like, um, we kind of manufacture new companies based on need. And we only, again, we build as a, an extreme last resort. Um, if we see, you know, if we see something in the market that's doing a good job, we'll just adopt that, right? Because um, one, one of the kind of pieces of math I've always explained to my counterparts and other parts of the industry is, you know, Providence Ventures is a $300 million um, fund, if we double that, we'd be in the top quartile performance. But if you divide that by kind of a 10 year kind of, you know, uh, you know, harvesting period, that's about $30 million of benefit a year, you know, on a, we have $11.5 billion in cash in our treasury, in our treasury. And, you know, that, that's a, that's a de minimis impact to us, you know, uh, over a 10 year period. It's, it's really about getting that leverage. It's a Providence Ventures is kind of a tool for getting leverage in our innovation work. So interesting. Yeah, I'd love to, let's talk a little bit more about the model that you mentioned, Aaron, and both of you touched on this, uh, your process for iterating on whether it's a product idea or business idea, whatever internal transformations needed. I'm really curious if we can talk a little bit about what the role of strategy is uh, as part of an incubator. And, you know, I come from uh, the advertising world. So I'm thinking about things like, you know, more along the lines of strategic planning, insights, and so forth. Some of that upfront work that goes into guiding your decisions and investments, uh, you know, financially and, and resource, uh, other resources. Can you guys talk a little bit about what that planning process is like in both of your worlds? Yeah, Woody, do you want to go first? Yeah, happy to. So, um, so 
it's a different kind of strategy, um, right? Because when you think about uh, general corporate strategy and think about um, how uh, you've got to advance the company in terms of uh, both scope, scope, scale, and efficiency, um, you're thinking about the more traditional ways to, to manage the business. And you're thinking about the next sustaining innovation, um, possibly an, an adjacent innovation. When you start thinking about the future and disruption, your, your focus on strategy really has to change. It has to be about um, uh, what, what we call, a lot of people call a future back uh, perspective where um, instead of thinking about what your next role is and what your next product and, and your next strategic move is, you're thinking about what the, is going to happen well into the future and starting to think about the scenarios that you will play in. Um, where are your strengths and, um, and where and how can you participate in the value that's going to be created uh, well into the future? Um, and then uh, because we're all um, human as opposed to uh, crystal ball readers, um, you've got to identify scenarios that you think are likely, and then you've got to start testing those scenarios. Mm -hmm. And so a future back concept is, a, is, a, is, a, is an addition to your existing strategy element that, that has to play on, on both sides of the equation of sustaining your existing business and yet being disruptive to uh, where the business is going to head. So uh, what we see is clients have to get um, better at this concept of executing in the future back um, and, uh, and get comfortable executing in a future back scenario and then having the, uh, the, the both governance process and the organization to be able to test those scenarios in a way that is a affordable um, and b customer focused um, and c uh, able to to scale um, because what we of course see is that a lot of times um, state companies have defined what the future is and yet have a hard time uh, incubating it to the point where it becomes the next piece of their core of their business um, and that's the challenge of of any company um, that's uh, that's uh, faced with disruption, which by the way, is all of us now. <laughs> it used to be just a few companies and a few industries. Now it's all of us. And so we all have to get better at this um, both uh, future back uh, strategy work and scenario testing and uh, insulating that, uh, that process in a way that allows it to thrive and then finding a way to be able to integrate back to the core. Yeah, I mean, from our, our perspective, most recently, um, we, we've kind of shown, you know, kind of our work more recently in terms of how we think about the strategic analysis. So I have a small team um, that internally, it's a digital strategy team, that <clears throat> their role is kind of, you know, think about it as like digital opportunity kind of target selection. And so what they do is they talk to um a ton of our caregivers, a ton of our senior management across our entire organization on a continuous basis um, to really understand, you know, what, what are the big, what we call needle moving opportunities for our organization. And then they do a, a ton of external dis, uh, interviews and, and research and, and, and that kind of thing, just to try to understand where the industry is moving, what's going to be important, and then what are the corresponding you know, digital opportunities. And then they stack rank these, these, these ideas or these opportunities and they 
actually put a number against them. Like, you know, what is this worth clinically or economically if we solve the problem? And then we, we, we kind of stack rank them and then we kind of draw, you know, kind of what we did at Amazon, which is, you know, we draw a line above and below the line and things that are above the, above the line, we're going to actively explore and continue to work on and start generating MVPs against below the line is our backlog and our backlog is huge. Um, there's a ton of, you know, massive opportunities in, in healthcare. And, and the, the biggest problem I've seen with, you know, startups is they focus on stuff that's way below the line that in any other industry would be a massive opportunity, but because healthcare is so inefficient and it's kind of de deceptive to them, which is like, well, they'll come to me and they'll say, but Aaron, we did the, you know, the total addressable market on this opportunity. And it's like, you know, $700 million. And you say those words outside of healthcare and you get a VC's attention. You say it to me and I'm like, I don't get out of bed unless it's like, you know, 10 billion. Yeah. Um, because we've just got such huge problems that we're dealing with. And so anyway, so the team does that analysis. And for the first time, um, during COVID, we actually published a form of it called the Digital Insights Reports. And um, it's gotten a lot of really great traction. Um, you know, we're getting hundreds of downloads a week on it from, you know, various different industry participants. And it's all free. And the reason why we published it is, you know, during COVID, we had actually just finished this process I was describing. And I, you know, and I had this kind of tough conversation with the team. And I said, look, you know, I know you just wrapped this up, but we just got hit with a pandemic. What changed, right? And so we've got to go through and kind of go through that iteration again. They interviewed about 100 people, both in, inside and outside of the organization. Very, very senior people, both internally and externally. And then also people who are kind of delivering care on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, consumers, et cetera. And then did a ton of research and then kind of plotted out how we think COVID is going to kind of roll through the industry and how it's speeding certain things up. And, uh, and the reason why we did this is to put a stake in the ground for other people to tell us, you know, in the industry, here's what you missed. Here's what you're not thinking about. And so we're getting a lot of great feedback that helps us learn. And it's something unique to healthcare. I mean, we're, we're still on the provider side, very regionally based. And so it's, we have conversations at least three to four, conversations with other health systems that you know a week uh trading ideas and notes and this is just a more formal way of doing it so it's been super productive and educational for us and and uh we've gotten a lot of great feedback yeah let's talk more about the pandemic relative to the, to broadly what you guys are doing but also specifically the the planning uh and model approach that you both take because it, what's it, it, you know super super fascinating how you both think about sizing opportunities and and you know figuring out what where your investments go and your resources go one thing we've talked about a lot on this podcast is how COVID-19 has impacted you know every single thing related to obviously healthcare but also driving digital innovation across industries and I'm curious how the pandemic has affected those processes in terms of the amount of 
time you have available to you to be able to respond to the market need when the need is present. Uh, and if you're changing how you're prioritizing the work you do uh, or the processes with which you move forward on work, or if it's more like, okay, we see this as a uh, an indication of future state and we're proceeding kind of as normal and, and we will catch up. Yeah, so Kelly, uh... As you said, everything changed six months ago, right? And um, you know, imagine uh, the business that I'm in. We were primarily in the business of bringing clients into our physical spaces where we would think differently with them, um, and that meant you know bringing together um, 10, 20, 30 client team members, surrounding them with experts, both internal uh, to EY and externally and uh, looking at a problem from a completely different perspective and trying to generate those scenarios that Aaron was speaking about earlier. And uh, when that all changed, uh, we had to overnight uh, flip that capability to be virtual. Um, and uh, we were able to do that because we were using technology primarily um, to, to, uh, to do all the collaboration in the first place. We were using uh, technologies like uh, mural collaboration tools and Miro and we're using Microsoft Surface Hubs and other technologies to uh, to try to capture all of the collaboration that we we're doing and make it more digital. Um, and so being able to switch it over to, to virtual was fairly straightforward. Uh, just add a Zoom layer or a Microsoft Teams layer or a WebEx layer and, and you're off and running. Um, and what we've seen is um, we've seen even more demand. Um, and the reason is because mm. our clients have to move these programs and projects forward and they're seeing exactly what you talked about. Everything is changing. The digital channels are accelerating. They've probably accelerated by five years in five months, um, whether it's a telehealth channel or it's a direct-to-consumer channel um, or an or a online call center. Whatever it is, if it was digital, it, it accelerated in a significant way. And we see that as um, the overly used words, the new normal, that it's uh, it's likely to be here to stay. Um, certainly, there, there may be some drawback to uh, the, the, the uh, physical. And at the same time, people have learned how to do this. And so I'll give you a simple example for us. We see clients um, completely reevaluating uh, how many people really need to be in the office going forward and what kind of office space they need. Uh, so we have both a practice that looks at um, how people work in offices and, and how they operate um, and what it means to come back safely to work. And we also have a practice that looks at real estate and, and optimizes your real estate portfolio. So we're putting those two things together right now and pushing that into market as a new offering to say, how do you relook at your workforce, look at all your workspaces and reevaluate your entire <laughs> real estate portfolio mm -hmm. to be able to innovate just around that, that simple innovation. Um, and that, and that's just one of probably a hundred things clients have to think about as it relates to the changes around COVID. Yeah, I, I, one example, you know, is is illust, illustrated by the third company that we're incubating. This, you know, uh, Dexcare, and um, you know, kind of pre-COVID, it was really, really focused around what I would call same day care. So this, you know, we have a retail relationship with Walgreens where we have nurse practitioner staffs, you know, uh, staffed in clinics, you know, embedded in Walgreens. And then we have a, a on-demand telehealth uh, capability through this, this platform called Dexcare. 
And, um, you know, pre-COVID, you know, that was kind of where most of the digital adoption was happening within our health system because, you know, super convenient, easy, I want to schedule same day or I want to be seen through telehealth and, and whatnot. <clears throat> um, COVID hit and, you know, if you'd asked me a year ago, hypothetically, what, what are the things that would cause massive online adoption for telehealth? I would say, well, first you'd have to close down all the clinics. Then you would have to make payment the same, right? Um, and, and if you could do those two things, then, you know, you would probably see massive adoption of telehealth. And sure enough, you know, um, the pandemic did both of those things. Um, and, and so we all, so the impact was, is that we started lighting up all these other endpoints that consumers typically didn't want to engage in di digitally. So, you know, our primary care business, our specialty business, you can now schedule um, both, you know, uh, online and you can also do telehealth visits, um, urgent care, um, EDs, you know, like basically all these kind of consumer these endpoints that the patient could go be, be seen for, for, for something digitally were, were lit up in kind of three months. And so now the, the problem that DexCare is tackling is much, much more complex because um, now you have to navigate a patient who's expressing interest in say, for instance, they may you know, have a complaint that, you know, I may have a UTI for instance, before we would see them in one place, either, you know, in, in clinic or virtually, you know, in, you know, in that kind of same day care setting. Now they could be seen in, you know, 11 or 12 places in the, in the area. So how do you navigate them to the right venue of care to where they have the best experience? And then the other kind of technology challenge that, you know, Dexcare is, 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 is creating is, is all right. So then how do you kind of compete? How do you, how do you, measure whether or not that was a good experience and then create a ongoing loop using machine learning that says every single time somebody with these characteristics expresses this kind of intent, I'll navigate them there because I get the best possible outcome for that patient with, you know, assuming those clinics are in these states. And so the state could be, you know, like, do they have availability, right? So we don't want to send somebody to a clinic who's, you know, mm -hmm. who's, who has no you know, schedule of, uh, of availability. Um, when should that availability be, right? So, you know, like, is it, does it matter if it's same day or can it be for the next week, right? Um, and so the complexity of what we're dealing with digitally now has kind of expanded because of this rapid um, adoption. And then the, the last thing I'll say about it is, you know, if you'd asked me this time, you know, last year, I was going around saying, what we should be really concerned about as an industry is getting ready for, and I think I used to say it's 12 to 18 months, we've got to be ready to serve patients digitally um, as soon as possible because, you know, company, disruptive startups and companies like Amazon and Google, et cetera, are, are coming our direction and are going to disrupt our organization. Turns out it was the pandemic that did it, but they're right behind it because what's happened is we've teed up all those patients who've now experienced digital and were satisfied with it right into the hands of these disruptors who are basically, you know, the pandemic's done their job for them, right. Of, of, of kind of driving customer adoption. Um, and so now we, the, 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 the urgency is even higher. <laughs> so those, those are kind of, you know, just 
you know, that's just one, one aspect of how the pandemic has kind of really kind of, you know, catalyzed things in our industry. Well, in this, um, I, I think what you set up there, Aaron, is um, the need, as you talked about um, serving these clients up into now um, a digital environment where they are now comfortable being in a digital environment and they're comfortable um, doing telemedicine or perhaps even being monitored in their home. Um, that does introduce all kinds of new capabilities, new services, new technologies, new requirements that we've only yet to begin to think about. And this gets back to the state uh, company issue. If you are the kind of company that innovates very slowly and deploys technology more for internal enterprise capability than for example, customer experience, then you've got a lot of work to do. And, and what we're seeing is this shift in value drivers where the real value is coming from innovation at scale. So being able to innovate very, very rapidly in the pace that you were talking about earlier, being able to de deploy technology at speed, almost like a software company would deploy technology and putting the human at the center of all that. Um, because if you put technology at the center of it and just say, hey, look at this great piece of technology, let's go find out what we can do with it. Uh, that, that's kind of 20, 30, 40 years ago what the approach was because you got a, a really cool new technology once every um, year. <laughs> now you get them once every um, month or week. Um, and you've really got to look at it from the human experience back and say, what is the job we're trying to get done? Thank you, Clayton Christensen. Um, and uh, how do we make that a better job and how do we apply technologies to make that job better? So we've got to be able to innovate those experiences at scale. We've got to think about what those new experiences even look like. We've got to be able to deploy technology very, very quickly. Um, and we've got to keep that human being at the center. Otherwise, we miss the mark and, and we waste a lot of money um, way below the line, to your point, Aaron, working on below the line stuff, as opposed to the stuff that's really going to change the needle you know, above the line. Yeah, and I would also say that it's not really even, you know, and, and if you're in a state industry, going back to the theme, um, chances are you're, you're, you're way behind. And if, if consumers are becoming more important to your business, I mean, the, the radical change that happened in healthcare is in 2008, where the, the Great Recession really kind of proliferated high deductible plans. And so patients were paying more out of pocket and they're becoming less connected to a payer, um, you know, and so they were out shopping, right? And so that is that was the first big kind of event you know, that kind of, you know, started to transform healthcare is, is that, you know, consumers really started to, 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 to say, you know, I'm paying for this and I'm getting really crappy service, right? You know, it doesn't feel like all the other very expensive services that I go and I pay for. Um, it's not, there's no self-service, you know, like I have to call somebody um, and so on. And so, you know, I would I would argue that you know for you know if you're if you're working in a state industry, um, you don't have to be nearly as visionary at least initially um, as you might have to be if you know right now if you're in like retail or media or something like that because like you're you're just playing catch up. I, I remember having um, a discussion four or five years ago. My team is um, you know very very kind of 
lean startup purists. They always want to see evidence around, you know, customer demand and that kind of thing. And, and, and we had this debate about, you know, do people want to do online scheduling in healthcare? Shouldn't we test that hypothesis? And I was like, guys, just there's certain things that we should just assume are true because of how it rolled out in other industries, right? Let's not like, you know, let's not worry ourselves as to whether or not people want self-service, you know, because they're doing it and travel and everything else. And so, and so, so there's certain things you don't have to go to that kind of trouble for in, in the state industries that, you know, just go look at the roadmaps other industries have taken and, and follow that, you know, to, to some extent. Yeah, let's talk about that more. So one, one thought that I had while listening to what both of you just shared is how lucky or maybe the right word is smart you and your organizations were to already have this uh, practice of, of innovation in place in advance of something incredibly disruptive like a global pandemic happening. Uh, but I got to imagine, you know, we're talking about state industries. I'm sure lots of our listeners are parts of state industries and you know, predominantly healthcare, most likely, but but elsewhere. And I got to imagine some of our listeners are either the person that's tasked with thinking about this, or it's like part of their job, among other things, or it's just something they're interested in, even though it's not their day job. And so for someone that's not doesn't have the the amount of, I'd say, organizational support and validation, but recognizes the need to innovate and disrupt their state organization. What advice do you have in terms of uh, what the next step is? Is it to advocate for that support? Is that even the next thing, or to deprioritize, uh, uh, you know, existing work streams to be able? Yeah, to this is like support? right over Woody's plate. So I'm going to let him, him do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, so here's the challenge, right? Um, most corporations have been able to get away with um, what I would call um, uh, productivity enhancements and sustaining innovation uh, for a long time, right? Having to completely transform the core of their business to become something completely new and different um, is... Um, is out of the realm of possibility for most companies. And, and when they did do that, um, they did it through acquisition. Mm. Um, so they would go acquire a company and go through that really painful process of reinventing the core and integrating that back in and, and coming through. And, and that's a painful process, as everyone knows, and uh, can be really challenging. What, what I suggest now is that organizations need to have and build this muscle. Uh, they need to be able to run the, the core business. They need to be able to improve the core business at a scale that's pretty significant because they do have to have su adjacent and sustaining innovation and a lot of it to make it uh, really work. And they also have to have significant productivity improvements. They have to be applying data and analytics and insights and better customer experiences and better employee experiences. And they have to be able to incubate new businesses and, and do what Aaron is doing inside the organization. And, and you have to be able to do mergers and acquisitions. So now you have to do all four of those. And the one that companies are, are least, uh, from my perspective, have, have a long, the longest way to go and the biggest gap is in this idea of incubating disruptive uh, businesses or new businesses that they're either going to spin out mm -hmm. or are going to become the core of the business um, you know, in, the, in the long run. And so you have this real challenge of how do you manage those three portfolios because they're very different, right? 
um, when you're running the, the standard business, if you're also in charge of building new businesses, it's really, really difficult to balance those two things because running of the day-to-day -day business is almost always going to take priority. Um, and also, if you start looking at your investments, you know, these incubations, as, as Aaron pointed out, they're three-year to seven-year investments that have to be funded through the whole thing. You've got to stay with it and stick with it. Um, otherwise, if you use the standard yearly um, in investment cycle to manage this, um, you'll kill those investments halfway through the process um, just because uh, a leadership leader changed or because we had an investment crisis of some kind or a pandemic um, that, that changed everything. And so you start looking at that differently. So what I suggest, Kelly, is that you organizations really have to get good at all three of these. They have to get great mm -hmm. at running the standard business or core business. They have to be really good at um, improving the business and getting that next sustaining innovation in the queue and, and developing it. And then they need to be able to incubate the new, both through acquisition and through developing their own businesses um, and, and their own ideas. Uh, because the acquisition strategy is getting more and more expensive because in most cases, you're innovating around new technology or analytics. And buying a technology or analytics company is incredibly expensive um, in today's environment. Yeah, I, I would just uh, one kind of specific example that I, I want to pick on with respect to, to Woody, uh, Woody's point there was um, a big part of the challenge in state industries is this kind of, you know, Stalinistic kind of five year planning cycles, you know, where they basically, you know, you have an annual budget and then you're going to and then all the benefit for whatever investment that you do is going to have to be kind of within that same year. Right. Right. And um, and so, for instance, right now, you know, I'm going to our finance partners who who are very innovative and we have this opportunity that is a six to one, you know, payback. But the problem is, is it spans, you know, anywhere from kind of 18 to 24 months. Right. And the so you have to make the investment this year to get the benefit for next year. And, you know, and so it's almost like a capital budget thing, even though it's an expense. Right. And so I, I hate to get so nerdy about accounting, but that really, those types of things really matter in innovation because, you know, you're kind of otherwise avoiding or, or, or passing on something that's, that's probably the best return in our health system. If we can kind of just get, get the investments to, you know, to kind of play out. Um, and then the other thing I would also say, just to add to kind of, you know, a lot of the great thoughts that Woody just had it, uh, are just kind of expressed is, you know, in, in healthcare on the provider side, we're very regional, right? And so we don't really compete against each other. There's like 200 major health systems in the United States, I think. And we've met with 150 over the past 18 months and we do half day meetings with them. And so to going back to your kind of the, the lonely individual who's kind of, you know, you know, at a health system, for instance, um, early on, I met a lot of them. And a lot of the ways that they basically convince their senior management that this is important is to kind of come talk to us. And what we can show them is here's the reason why we're doing digital because there's two kind of biases. One is I've got a lot of stuff on my plate. This digital thing, is it really going to matter? You know, that's bias number one. And number two is you were a X, you know, tens, if not hundreds of year old organization. Can we really get it to happen? Right. And so what we do is we 
explain to them why we're doing this. We believe this is an existential threat to our organization um, because, you know, just doing the math, we take, you know, our profitable part of the business are commercial patients, right? They are, you know, then you've got Medicare and Medicaid where we break even and lose money on, you know, in those two, two areas, the commercial patients pay for our mission. Um, those commercial patients also happen to be highly digitally adopted, right? So they're, everybody on this phone is a commercial patient. You know, you're all, you all have private insurance. So you all are using kind of digital. And um, if they go somewhere else, we die, right, as an organization. So the math is pretty easy and the argument is pretty easy. But when they see a major health system kind of, you know, taking that position and why we're investing in this, that helps to convince them. And then the second thing is, is, is it possible, you know, we're a 160 year old organization. Like we are the oldest organization founded by women in the United States. I mean, we're very proud of that. Um, but, but, you know, we were founded around the civil war. Right. And so, you know, so that answers the second question of it is possible to do these types of transformations. So, so to kind of summarize, if you're out there alone, you know, you know, kind of howling at the wind within your organization, you know, go and find other examples where things are, you know, where they can make the argument against those two different biases, mm -hmm. right? Of it doesn't matter and it's not possible, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, it's, a, it's such a great example. And, you know, I, I, uh, I look at the state industries. I was at a company the other day that had been in business for 122 years and they had re-engineered the core of their business essentially twice in 122 years. You think about some of the new companies, um, I can think of a streaming company, for example, that has re-engineered its business twice in 22 years, uh, going from mail order to streaming to now content. And so the, the challenge is less about, you know, are we going to, um, uh, are we going to have to reinvent the core of our business and, and incubate something new and, and become that thing? Uh, it's now just a matter of how soon is it going to happen and how quickly is it going to happen to us? And, um, you know, for most organizations, it's going to happen every decade. And that's, that's mind blowing to most people. And at the same time, I think with the pace of change, I think that's reasonable to assume um, that, that the core of your business is essentially going to, to, to change. Totally. Yeah. I mean, one thing I would love to discuss as we wrap up is, uh, you know, the thing I'm noticing and, and fascinated with out of this conversation is how similar some of the challenges are in both of your industries, as well as, you know, likely other state industries and folks who are tuning in and how empowering it feels to see each of your own approaches and fingerprints on like the specific ways that you're solving the challenges for your organizations. And so I would love to just do a little fun thought exercise as we wrap up and, you know, 
also building on the theme of there are, you know, above the line, below the line, there's so many good problems to solve or we could have so much impact. Both of you guys have more on your plate than you could ever get to um, in the next, you know, calendar year. But let's just pretend that you have the, you know, the Aaron, you have the opportunity to tap Woody for some help on one of your biggest challenges. And Woody, you have the opportunity to tap Aaron for help on one of your biggest challenges based on kind of each of your unique strengths and approaches that you've taken to disrupting your state industries that we've learned about on this call. I would just love to hear from each of you, what would be the thing you would want uh, the other to dig into that's on your plate and why? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go first. I, I think that, and I've talked about this before, part of the downside of our model, because we're out talking to, again, a, a wide range of our you know, our, our clinical and operating folks, as well as other people in industry, is that is our frame of reference, right? And so, you know, so we, I would say, do a really good job of kind of executing on priorities that are probably in the, you know, three to five year range of being kind of relevant. And so one of the things that, you know, my team gets a lot of feedback around is, is like, you know, one of our vendors, um, you know, one of our portfolio companies always says, you know, you guys are about three three years ahead of the rest of the market in terms of digital, right? Which I which is a compliment, but it also indicates that we're definitely not ten years ahead because that would be unsustainable, right? And that would that would not work. But I think you know one of the things I would I would want to work with Woody about is like, what does that ten year look like, right? Because like we it's for us it's it's you know, and this is also probably a bit of my personality kind of inflicted on the organization. We're very focused on shipping, you know, and, and, and it makes us very uncomfortable to do, you know, big picture tier three, you know, horizon planning and that kind of thing. But the problem is, is if you, if you don't at least have some awareness of where things could go, you may mm -hmm. kind of start to paint yourself into a corner strategically of making an investment. So in other words, we're definitely not like saying, Hey, wow, it'd be a great idea to, you know, we have 51 hospitals, let's build another 50, right? Um, so so we're, we have that level of common sense about the future. <laughs> but, 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 you know, I would also argue that we're not thinking in kind of, a, you know, a 20 year horizon or whatnot, right? And so my question would be, are we making investments that will then become, you know, redundant or, you know, like, if we are, let's be intentional about it right? And versus being surprised, right? I always tell my team is like, you know, if you're going to do something and you, and you know, it's going to be long-term, not valuable, but in the sh short three to five year term, very, very valuable. Let's know that because then we can kind of plan against it, right? Versus being surprised, right? So I think that would be one area. Um, it be interesting to talk to Woody about. Yeah. And for me, Kelly, it's, um, it's, it goes back to this idea of managing three portfolios or even four portfolios. Um, what Aaron has demonstrated is uh, his organization's ability to um, stay insulated from the business to a degree and build things that are relevant and at the same time uh, continue to run the core business and, and make sure that uh, the, the business is, is proceeding. Um, both from an improvement perspective as well as, um, uh, you know, a growth perspective. So for me, uh, understanding um, how, uh, how his organization has been 
uh, insulated appropriately, <laughs> both from a compliance perspective as well as a legal perspective <laughs> and a financial perspective, um, and motivated properly from a KPI perspective, um, because they're, th those two things become incredibly important when it comes to staying focused on this and and having a, uh, a, a CEO and and a board that understands the importance of disruption and and really focuses on it. Um, for for us, you know, as as EY, I mean, you could you could think about EY certainly as, a, as you know having accounting heritages being a state industry as well. Now we have a, a consulting and a technology arm as well that that drives um, a lot of change from that perspective. And at the same time, you know, we're known very much as a protect brand. Um, people think about us around um, internal audit and tax and assurance. Um, and we've built a $8 billion um, uh, consulting business in the last uh, 10 years that does a lot of work in finance transformation and supply chain resilience and supply chain transformation and those things. So I would say, um, we know our, our, our brand and optimization has grown. The biggest stretch for our brand is in uh, growth, is being known as a company that can help businesses grow. So um, folks like Aaron would probably think of EY um, somewhere down the list when it comes to uh, a growth brand. And that's the transition, the big transformation that we have to make as a brand. Um, and we are, we're, we're putting a lot of emphasis and effort right now into, uh, into this idea of transformation realized and helping clients reframe their future. And so, um, you know, when it comes to protecting, optimizing and growing a business, we have to be able to help companies do all three, all under the umbrella of transformation. Um, and, uh, and so when it comes to uh, thinking about how Aaron uh, and his uh, organization could help us think through that, uh, that that uh, brand transformation is uh, is really crucial. Wow, you guys both have a lot on your plates. <laughs> I'm gonna let you get back to it. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Aaron and Woody. You've been listening to the Think Tank podcast, brought to you by the Digital Innovation Group at Providence Health. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review or follow at Prov Innovation on Twitter for more discussion about how digital can inspire solutions to some of our biggest challenges. I'm your host, Kelly Stonelake. Until next time, take care.